It's been a few months since State Senator Barbara Washington took her oath of office to represent part of Kansas City in the Missouri Senate. And the Democratic official has been hard at work on economic development issues and the debate over whether to keep the residency requirement in place for the Kansas City Police Department. Washington joins us next on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me, she is the senator for Missouri's 9th district, representing a big chunk of the beautiful city of Kansas City. Our guest today is Barbara Ann Washington. I I am so excited to have you on the show for two reasons. Number one, uh, my mom was born in Kansas City and my grandpa grew up in Kansas City. So even though I'm a St. Louis person, I I am a big fan of Kansas City and I always love having guests here. And uh, the other reason, and we talked about this before the show, I am now talking with a fellow graduate of the University of Missouri School of Journalism, and I am so excited to see another legislator from the greatest journalism school in the world. The greatest. And in fact, um, whenever I mention the J School on the floor in a committee, I always say the famed number one University of Missouri School of Journalism. My wife went to the uh, Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern, and I'm always like, Mizzou's better, Lauren. I'm, I'm sorry. Definitely better. I remember in college uh, interning um, at the Kansas City Star, and um, there were some interns from Northwestern. And, you know, when you're at the J School, you're like, wow, we're number one, like, you know, you feel like you, you could be doing better. And then when I met them and I was like, well, you don't know this. You don't know this. You don't know how to do this. You don't know how to create this. You don't know how to get your own story. You don't know how to do this, this, and this. And I was like, oh, we are number one. You guys are so far behind us. You shouldn't even count yourself as top 10. They were smart, but I do think our, um, definitely during the time that I went to Mizzou, uh, having that hands-on experience working for the Missourian um, was invaluable. I don't think that... Um, I would never I wouldn't want to do it another way. So beyond the fact that you have a journalism background, I do want you to tell us a little bit about yourself, um, you know, kind of your professional background before you got into state legislative politics. You won a special election in 2017. You won the Senate seat pretty easily, I would say, uh, last year. I worked really hard for that seat. Talk about how you got here. Um, so I am a native of Kansas City. Um, I uh, grew up in um, what now is considered the urban core and was when I was growing up. Um, I think my my mom was alive. I think she we'd been in that neighborhood for 67 years, I believe, uh, this year. Um, and the baby sister, as my brother likes to say, of a fellow journalist or, um, who went to the others that that terrible school on the other side of Kansas City. Um, and they have the mythical bird. Um, so I've always had a keen interest in um, my community. 
I looked at journalism as a way to be of service because you're providing valuable, factual, objective information to the community. And that's what I saw journalists being. Um, I grew up in a home where my mother is a preacher's kid and service wasn't just what you said, but service was what you do with whatever talents that you happen to have. And so taking that all the way and wanting to remain in my community, I went to Mizzou for journalism school on a scholarship, uh, tried to run a little track, but I wasn't the greatest. So uh, J school's what, what kept me there. Uh, came home and worked at the Star and was a, a freelancer for some time with Business Week magazine, worked at the Kansas City Business Journal, <clears throat> and then went to law school because I'd always wanted to go to law school. I stayed at law school in Kansas City and um, just have through my sorority and church and other organizations found that service is what I'm best at and decided that one day I knew I wanted to run for office um, because people in my community, um, they have a lot of needs and they have a lot of strength and they are smart. But sometimes when they're not around people that are necessarily like us, uh, like themselves, they don't they're not as confident with speaking up to making sure that they're getting everything that they need uh, for their for their community. And I decided that I would be that person. It's kind of like, and I would never compare myself to him, but Martin Luther King was selected because he could cross over and not have the Southern accent. And he could speak to, to white people in a different manner because, he, because of his education. And so, um, and he is one of my idols, obviously, but wanted to be able to be that voice for my community and thought that running for office would be a good way to change policy. I, I do have to ask this question. Are you the first black female attorney in Missouri Senate history? I am. How do you think that makes you stand apart from your colleagues? Not just the fact that you're black, but the fact that you're an attorney, because oftentimes attorneys have a different way of looking at legislation. But I would also just add that being a black woman probably gives you a different perspective of how to see policy as well. So I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. I don't know if my colleagues have really paid attention to that as much. Steve, uh, Senator Roberts is getting a lot of attention um, and doing an amazing job. But um, it does help me look at laws a little different um, ever since I've been in the building um, because I don't just look at the words that are on the paper. I try to go the next step as to how these laws actually apply in the real world because these are the statutes that I earn a living well before I came here. These are the things that for 20 years, this is what I did. I, I'm a lawyer. I studied these statutes and I have to apply them to the real world. And I think that that um, perspective is not something that's well um, well used here in the building because people may not live in a world where they're actually applying the laws or see how the laws are being applied. And so I think by taking that uh, circular view helps me um, find some issues in these statutes or in the bills that are presented that are different from other people. Well, let's dive into an issue that I think you're going to be pretty heavily involved in. Uh, we had Senator Brian Williams on the show a few weeks ago where he talked about his criminal justice legislation that tries to hit at certain points uh, of policing practices. But one of the things that's going to be included in this legislation is taking the residency requirement off of the Kansas City Police Department, which is something that I, I'm sure that you have a, an opinion on since you represent the city of Kansas City. Um, is that going to be a deal breaker for you, even if it includes some provisions that 
you may or may not agree with? Like, what's going to be your mentality when this is debated over the next few weeks? Well, um, like I said, I, I am, I'm, I am the representative and the delegate for the ninth district and for the voices that live in my community. And right now, my community is not in favor of any any lifting of any residency requirement. Um, right now, my community um, is not having a great time with a lot of with the police department. Um, there are some requests, uh, and one of those is that the police continue to reside within our city boundaries. Um, I don't have a significant number of police officers who currently live in the ninth district. So I'm not asking you to live, no one, I don't, my community would prefer that you live closer to where you patrol. And that would possibly give you more insight to the people that you are, uh, you have signed up to protect and serve so that we may not have as much tension between African-Americans and our Hispanic brothers and sisters and just people of color in general with the police department. So right now I can't say what I'll vote, but right now I will definitely not vote for uh, lifting the police residency requirement in Kansas City. We are different. Uh, I know that the it passed through St. Louis last year and I don't think that the residents there necessarily wanted it. I think they had it on a ballot. Not sure how that went. I believe that that failed on the ballot, but I do know, and I was going to just ask you about that. Like, I think that during the special session last year, they, they there was one of the major things that passed was getting rid of the residency requirement for the city of St. Louis Police Department. And I could see both sides to that. The city of St. Louis is much geographically smaller than Kansas City. And I, I and I'll be and I, I've said this before on this show. I left the city of St. Louis for St. Louis County because the special education services in the city were not as robust as the ones in the county. We are almost six times larger geographically. We um, we have urban, suburban and some parts rural in Kansas City. So I don't know what the biggest need is. I have received lots of emails with respect to residency, and a lot of them, frankly, want to move to Kansas. And that's not something I would ever vote for. Um, I would never vote for you to be over in Kansas and 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 be policing us. Uh, so I think we're quite a bit different. Um, this is not a new issue for us, but the the old the old uh, reason used to be because I needed better schools. Well, you're not in the Kansas City, Missouri school district anyway. So that that that's a futile excuse when you can go to Lee Summit at Blue Springs. I mean, there are countless public school districts that you can attend. You're also not sending your kids to the charter schools. So th those are not reasons um, you want. I think the newest one I heard was because you might want to have a pond. My mom is a country girl. One of her friends lives right by Lee Summit and has a pond in his yard. He still lives in Kansas City. Um, I have people in my district now, they weren't in House District 23, but they're in House District 22 and they have horses in their yard. So these are, um, so I understand that people should have a reason to live, but also you have an opportunity to choose where you work. And um, we, our police department has some issues with people of color right now. Um, there needs to be some more training. And I do personally think that more community policing is the answer, not moving far away, further away. Do you, if this bill comes up with the residency requirement being taken out, are you going to try and filibuster it or try to try to kill it? Or will you just vote no and move on? Oh, I'm pretty sure that I need to make sure the voices of my community are heard. 
moving on to another issue which did involve a filibuster, that's COVID-19 liability. And this passed a few weeks ago. Um, but the interesting thing about this bill, in my opinion, was that it passed, but the Senate did not adopt the emergency clause, which, in my view, gives this window after it's signed between, I don't know, May or June or whatever, whenever it gets to the governor's desk, and August 28th, when there could be a flood of COVID-19 litigation because there's no restrictions on it. I think the window is actually a little broader. The window is between now and August 28th, not necessarily when let's, when um, the session is over. Um, it has been since COVID has started until August 28th when, the le- when legislation will become effective. So I do see that. Um, it couldn't get passed. Um, there was issues beyond just the filing of lawsuits against businesses and, and, and other entities. I think there was um, a concern about churches and their, um, their liability was a big reason that the bill was filibustered. In addition to those of us on my side of the aisle who just don't necessarily believe that, it, that all COVID liability should be waived. So I, I do understand both sides of this. Like, I, I think that if you are like totally reckless you know somebody has COVID-19, like an employee, for example, and you're just like, hey, stay here and infect everybody. Yeah, I think that that business should be held liable for giving other people COVID. I think what I've heard from Republicans is that COVID is an airborne disease, and there's really no way to know where you got COVID if you get it. And punishing businesses, I'm using punishing maybe as a pejorative word, and you can correct me. Uh, it's not really fair when we don't know if they're responsible. And I think that's kind of the the impetus behind this. I live in a community where um, we had a nursing home that had over 100 cases. They didn't happen one day or two days or three days. And I think part of, of, of what being a responsible business entity, especially in the care of people, is um, to take measures to make sure that that does not continue to happen. When we were in special session at the end of last year, um, someone from uh, the, nur- the agency that governs nursing homes testified in, bu- in budget that there are, there are standards that the department has set forth, but there's no um, checks and balances. So they only know something has happened after a complaint has arisen. And that's not necessarily the way we should be doing things. And those are our most vulnerable citizens are our senior citizens that are in nursing homes and are, you know, and are sick. So for me, that, that's a big concern. And I'm just using them as an example of, you know, we had a couple of nursing homes, one on the Kansas side with over 100 cases, one on the Missouri side um, with over 60 some odd cases. And to me, that kind of opens up the question. It begs the question of what are you doing to prevent the spread, not just for those who are in your care, but for those who come in your building. And it is different in some businesses because it is airborne, but if one business, you know, every one and every three people are getting COVID. And that means you're not taking any precautions to protect those that you intend to do business with. Do you think that, though, is, is the bill just going to pass out of the House? And Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Was your caucus able to really make any meaningful changes to it? We made we made some changes, um, as did the conservative caucus. And I'll give that credit to Steve Roberts. You can say that because uh, he, he would be the he would be the master for that. 
Um, Steve Roberts did an amazing job in negotiating that. Um, Senator uh, Razor did some good filibustering with that as well. But Steve Roberts played a big hand in the negotiation to getting that bill uh, to a point a point where um, it was um, more plausible than it was before. Yeah, it, it's one of those situations as a member of the Democrats in the Senate where you have leverage by using the filibuster, but you're using the leverage not to kill it, but to make it, in your view, less bad, essentially. Is that fair to say? That is, because we are in a supermajority, and that sometimes is all we can do. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Senator Barbara Washington. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Senator Barbara Washington. She is a Democrat from the Kansas City area. Uh, Before we get into my favorite subject in the world, which is redistricting, I I do want to give you a chance to talk about some of the bills that you're working on personally. We talked about this a little bit before we press record. Some of them are actually pretty interesting, and I want to give you a few minutes to talk about maybe some things that will will get have be less controversial than the two topics we just talked about, basically. So I think um, for me, my, my, my biggest things are workforce development, economic development. And for me, they, they go hand in hand with um, eliminating the blight that is uh, rampant in Kansas City, Jackson County, and specific, particularly the 9th District. So one of my favorite bills is um, to create a tax credit for urban farming. I've also been able to secure funding for urban farms throughout the state, as long as you are in what um, the census uh, determines a urbanized area, which basically means 50,000 people or more. I think we have 13 of those communities in the state. So if you um, have a farm, you're creating an urban farm or improving it, and this isn't a farm in your backyard or a community farm, it has to be, you know, there's some definitions to it, then you're allowed a tax credit of up to $5,000. and that would allow people who also can possibly invest that can help that grow. I live in a community with two um, where um, blighted areas have been uh, transformed into large greenhouse greenhouses and farms. Um, one is now Valley, Valley Aquaponics and the other is Green Acres Farms, which was founded by one of my sheroes, Carol Cole, who just recently passed in Kansas City. She was a big politician and very involved in our community. So they both do um, tilapia, they have tilapia farms in there and they both do uh, vegetables as well. And what's also impressive is that they both have a strong educational component to educate people about the nature of hydroponics or waterponics, um, aquaponics farming, as well as farming in general. Um, One is uh, partnered with, uh, they both work with the school district, but one is Green Acres has a very strong partnership with the Kansas City School District. They have a 4-H club. Um, They're working on reinstating a 4-4, I mean, FFA, uh, chapter, um, and they are actually partnered with a high school whose theme is agriculture. So that's a big deal for me. Um, blighted uh, tax credit for buying and buying a home in a blighted community and residing there. And then, you know, long term, we'd like to talk about how tax increment financing could be better. Yeah, that is an issue that will probably be talked about in the Missouri legislature until the end of time, just because it's so yes. controversial. Uh, but one thing I do want to talk about, again, that may elicit less controversy, more controversy. I don't know. We're recording this on March 11th at about three o'clock. And President Joe Biden has signed the American Rescue Plan into law. And that's going to have a huge impact on Missouri's bottom line and also municipal bottom lines. I believe that the city of Kansas City is going to get around $170 million from this. The city of St. Louis gets 
$500 million from this. They didn't get as much last time. And with Kansas City, um, since we didn't get a direct allocation last time, um, but we did get large allocation because of our uh, our population percentage in the four counties that we reside, Jackson County, uh, Platt, Clay, and a little bit of Cass. And so we may still have some other opportunities to do that. Um, but the city of St. Louis, this is a big shot for them in a good time. Um, regardless of how much you got, every dime is needed and it will help us. We have a horrible a homeless problem in Jackson County. Um, it will help us do that. It will help with much needed rent and mortgage assistance and all the other things that are in there. So from a state perspective, um, I have no idea what you know the governor and the Republicans want to do with, I think, almost $2.8 billion that's coming to the state. Um, I, I don't think you can do a situation where you like cut taxes and then backfill the revenue that way. I think that there are there are there are provisions that basically say you can't do that. So I, I don't know what's going to happen there. The thing that I'm really interested in, though, is there's another provision that says that if you expand Medicaid and by you, I mean the state of Missouri, Missouri would get an additional one. They would get more than a billion dollars for doing that. And I know that there's been rumblings about, like, not expanding Medicaid, even though there's a constitutional amendment that says you all have to. It just seems a little odd that you would still not expand Medicaid when you could take that money and then bank it and then use it to pay the state match for, like, the next five to seven years. Am I looking at this incorrectly or is that... You're looking at it correctly, but I think my other my colleagues on the other side will say, well, that's only five to seven years. And what do we do after that? And then it's going to cost us this much money and that sort of thing, too, um, because there have been rumblings, as you say, um, the voters did um, vote to expand Medicaid by over 60 percent. And now the questions are uh, for those who don't want to expand. But the vote didn't you know, the, the amendment doesn't mean that you have to fund it. Um, and so that's exactly what that means. Um, so there's going to be some challenges in getting it funded. Um, my very good friend, who is uh, Representative Cody Smith, the budget uh, chairman, uh, has some uh, concerns with respect to the, se- the security of our funding in the state of Missouri. The governor has said that he would fund it. So um, we're going to continue to be challenged. But I hate for us to keep, I don't like to leave any money on the table that's not ours. And so we're, I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table where we could not only be using that to expand Medicaid, reduce our actual uh, responsibility financially to doing that as a state budget, but also help those 200 and something thousand people in our state to not only get Medicaid, but it's going to make their lives better because once they know they have some health insurance, uh, they can go back to work and they can provide more funding to us through income taxes, more sales taxes and the like. Yeah. And I I talk about this extra bit of money kind of only in the context of you pay the state match with it. But you could also take a lot of that money and make the program, quote unquote, more efficient. And I'm using you can't see me right now. I'm doing air quotes. But you could like buy completely high end like computer software to make sure that the program is managed in a way where it, it it ends up costing you less in the wrong, long run because it's just managed more efficiently. Certainly kick off over 100,000 children because you can't find them or whatever the like when I'm sure when many of them were in school and could be found. So I agree with you. You can use it to make it a better and more efficient system as well. Um, but do you are you kind of expecting since this is a you know, this is a super majority Republican legislature. It's common for people for, on the Republican side to say, like, we don't like 
big government spending. Are you kind of expecting some of those arguments to be propelled, not only with uh, the Medicaid issue, but also how to spend the $2.8 billion for the state, basically? Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. I, I would not. And But it, it's funny to me, but we didn't we didn't care when we gave, you know, when we give tax credits uh, to one company that's $50 million or in, in the instance where, you know, in some communities, we've given away our entire super um, super TIF fund to one company. Um, so it's just, you know, what you pick and choose. I don't expect that this, going, you know, I don't expect this to be an easy road. Um, I don't expect my colleagues, all of us, all 197 of us, to realize that, um, or nine, whatever, whatever we are, 190 something, that we all have significant amount of people who need services in our communities and we need to be there for the people and not necessarily um, for the corporations. I, I am a big proponent that we need more jobs and I know we gotta do things and have incentives to bring companies and jobs to our communities, but we can't do that at the risk and at the cost of making things worse for the citizens themselves. The last topic I wanted to talk with you about is congressional redistricting. You are on a committee that is going to be handling this issue on the Senate side. Um, I don't really want to get into the ins and outs of like what's going to happen yet, because we're not going to have the granular census data until September 30th. But one thing I do want to ask you about is the timeline. I think it because it's going to be so late before you can start even drawing maps, there's a big expectation that there may have to be a special session for congressional redistricting in November or December. Have you heard anything about that uh, so far? I agree, but that is kind of like the rumblings and the rumors that go on. And, and you know, I mean, just logically, as you look at it, um, if we don't get the numbers until late September, there's no way we can start doing the maps or vote on uh, new districts until after that work is done. And we'll have to come back before January to do that. So th there's no way that we can't have a special session. There's no way it's going to be done during veto because veto is going to happen before we actually are. Um, veto is going to happen after we're supposed to get the, I'm sorry, before we're supposed to get the numbers. So we definitely will have to come back um, in a special session to deal with the redistricting of the congressional districts. Yeah. And the state legislative districts are separate from this process. I just want to make clear to everybody that I've, I've made that point clear so many times I'm hitting people over the head with it. As as this body of, of the elect, your state officials will only deal with congressional redistricting. The Constitution has a, a, a process as how state legislatures, um, the state Senate and House seats will be redistricted. Now, the problem is because the state legislative process is not expected to be finished completely, and that includes potential litigation until some point in uh, 2022, do you think you're going to have to move the filing period back from February to March and maybe make it from March to April or April to or March to May or something like that? Right now, that seems the logical thing that will have to be done unless we can get this thing done like super duper 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 fast, which means we'd have to have this thing done in early January to keep the same uh, deadlines that we have now. And I just don't see that that's going to be possible. Well, Senator, I just want to thank you so much for your time this afternoon. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How could people follow you either on Twitter, Facebook or any other parts of the World Wide Web? 
Oh God, I'm so old. I forget about social media. So on um, Facebook, I am Senator Barbara Ann with an E, Washington. On uh, Instagram, I believe I'm also Senator Barbara Ann Washington. I apologize if I'm not. And on uh, Twitter, it is BW67, B-E-E-D-U-B-Y-A-H, I believe 67. Um, and that is the Senator page. So I do try to keep a page just for my official self and then a page for my real self. Um, however, I do nothing bad on any of them. So you can follow me on anything you want to follow me on. And I appreciate it. And I really want to thank you for having me on today. I really, really love public radio. It is still the true bastion of journalism. And I'm going to be a journalist in my heart all day. M-I-Z. Z-O-U. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. <laughs>